in chapter 2. This morning we met Simeon. And next Sunday morning, before we come to the Lord's table, we're going to look specifically at the words of blessing that he spoke, uh, prophetic words, uh, very important words that he spoke about the Lord Jesus, about the future for him, for Mary, for Israel. Uh, But tonight, we are going to meet another person of strong faith, another person of godliness, and her name is Anna. So look with me at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 36. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple... Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So tonight's message is quite simple. I want us to walk through these three verses, noting what we are told about Anna. And because she is an example for us, we will make some connections to our own lives and some application along the way. And then we're going to step back and look at the big picture and ask what it was that God was doing through Simeon and through Anna on this particular day in Jerusalem and why it mattered, why it's significant. So let's start by looking at Anna. In these three verses, we are given 11 bits of information about her. So we're going to move quickly and just note what we are told here about Anna. So first we have her name. Her name is Anna. Uh, It's worth pointing out that Anna is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Hannah, which means grace. So Hannah in the Hebrew is Anna in the Greek. Uh, We've talked before about how the name of Jesus is Joshua, Yeshua in the Hebrew, but Jesus in the Greek, or Greek through Latin comes to us as Jesus. And if you think about it, you might can figure out what the issue is there. There is no letter H in the Greek alphabet. So when something gets translated into Greek and then out of Greek, it loses an H. And so Hannah became Anna when it went into the Greek language. Joshua, Yeshua, became Yesua when it went into Greek. And then when it went through Latin and into English, it became Jesus. So that's what happened there. No spiritual significance. Just maybe interesting, maybe. Um, So Anna's Hannah. Now, of course, Hannah was the mother of Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, Hannah was famous for going to God's house in her barrenness and in her sorrow and pleading with God to give her a child. And now, centuries later, we find another Hannah in the temple, in Jerusalem, in God's house. And she's also fasting and praying and pleading with God for a child. But Anna isn't praying for a child for herself. 
She is praying for the Messiah. She is waiting for the Messiah. Well, second, we're told that Anna is a prophetess. Uh, We do encounter female prophets occasionally in the New Testament. For example, the daughters of Philip in the the book of Acts uh, will be known as prophetesses. Um, The idea seems to be that Anna was regularly being used by God to speak his truth from himself to others. Uh, Maybe in that middle court, what was called the court of the women, uh, you would maybe have found Anna each day. And around her, people would gather because here she is, is this godly, older, elderly woman. And people would gather around and she would teach them the truths of God. She would speak to them the word of God. And that would make sense because at the end of our passage, we see her proclaiming to those waiting the redemption of Jerusalem that the Messiah has now come. And so it appears that she had an audience. As a prophetess, there were a group of people that listened to what she had to say. Third, we're told that Anna is the daughter of Phanuel. And we don't know who that is. But it seems possible that Luke must have thought that some of his readers would know who that is. And that's why he included that detail. More importantly, this is Luke showing us again that we're dealing here with real people. Uh, Real people, that this is a real historical event that is taking place. Uh, This Anna is a real woman with a real father from all that's that's included. Um, As an aside, I'll just mention uh, that I think we're in early February of 4 BC. So that's where I think we are. I do believe Jesus was born in late December of 5 BC, 40 days later. So around early February, here we are in the temple. Well, fourth, we're told that Anna was of the tribe of Asher. And Asher was one of those northern tribes that got wiped away by the Assyrian army centuries before this. But there was always a remnant. There was always a small number from those northern tribes that were taken into exile far away. There was always a remnant of them that remained in the land and that uh, existed all the way up into the the first century. Anna was one of those. Fifth, we find that Anna was advanced in years. Uh, In fact, Luke tells us that she was 84 years old. Now, when I first thought about that, I thought it seemed remarkably old for someone in first century Israel. Uh, After all, we're often told that just living to be 40 was a big deal back in those days. Um, When we were in Rome, we had the comment made to us that if you lived to be 35 or 40, you were an old person in, in the ancient world. Um, It turns out that isn't true at all. Uh, Forty years old was the average lifespan, but that's because the average is figured when you count all of the children who died in infancy. Uh, The truth is most children didn't make it till their 10th birthday. Uh, And because of that, that skews the average. But the reality is that if you could make it to your 10th birthday, you had a very good reason to believe that you would see at least 65 unless you were going off to war or or something like that. 
And so 84 probably was still a little unusually old for that time, uh, but not that unusual. And that is important because some people, when they teach this passage, teach that God was miraculously prolonging Anna's life beyond a normal natural age for that time in order for her to see the Messiah. Um, Certainly God was preserving her life as he does for each one of us, but there's nothing in the text that says that he was keeping her alive for an unusual or even unnatural amount of time as some people seem to think. Really, I think the main point that we should take from her age is that here she is still serving the Lord. Here she is being found in the temple at 84, speaking the truths of God as a prophetess. Um, She had not retired from good works. (laughs) She had not retired from serving her God. And I would simply remind us that we should each hope that our last years would be our most fruitful years. We should always hope and pray that the callings we have today are preparation for greater service that God has for us in the future. We should avoid the idea that once we reach a stage of life where our body is always aching and we're feeling the effects of aging, that suddenly we need to move to the sidelines of Christian service. No, not at all. Uh, Whatever your age, whatever your ability, uh, we ought to look at where God has placed us and see where we can be of maximum impact for his glory. And we should pray that our final years would be our most fruitful years. Well, sixth, we see here that Anna had been a long-time widow. Uh, We don't know when she was married But it is fair to assume in that culture that it was probably when she was quite a young lady. And her marriage was only seven years before her husband died. We know nothing about the marriage, how her husband treated her, or anything like that. But we do know enough to see that this is a woman who has seen her share of suffering. This is a woman who has known the suffering of deep loss. And she has known what it is to move on with God's help and to give herself devotedly to the Lord. Apparently for decade after decade after decade, she has lived as a widow, giving herself fully to the service of God. Well, seventh, we're told that Anna was always at the temple night and day. You'll see that? She was always at the temple night and day. Don't misunderstand that. It does not mean that she lived in the temple. Okay, that, that wasn't allowed. It was not a place for her to stay there at the temple. What it does mean is that if you wanted to find Anna, you knew where to find her. This is where she would be found. This is where she spent her days. Her heart and her life were given to the house of the Lord. That the special presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, she was as close to God as he gave her permission to be, which would have been that middle court um, of the temple. And whether we look at David in the Psalms, or whether we look at Simeon and Anna here, we find that a love for God's house, a love for God's presence, marks the godly. And we're going to see it with Jesus himself at only 12 years old, 
uh, very soon. We'll see that he bears this same mark. He's in his father's house. Well, eighth, we find here that Anna was a worshiper. That this was her regular activity. She could be found at the temple worshiping. That's where she wanted to be. That's what she wanted to be doing. She loved to worship. How about you? But before we even answer that, we should probably note this. That in our day, when people most often talk about worship, they tend to often think first about singing. We tend to think first and foremost about praise and worship, singing songs to God. And certainly there is a place for singing and worship. We, we just did that, and we believe that you worship God through song. But that does not appear to be the main thing that Anna was doing when it says that Anna worshipped. Luke points us to something else. Luke tells us that she was worshipping through prayer and through fasting. She did not depart from the temple worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, there may have been more to it. She likely brought sacrifices from time to time. She may well have sung songs from time to time. But here is what Luke tells us marked her nights and her days of worship. Fasting and prayer. That's what she loved to do. That's what she gave herself to doing. Fasting is the way we come to God And express to him how serious we are about the prayers that we are bringing before him. Fasting, when it is accompanying prayers, is how we say, This much, O God, I long for what I am asking. So I think what we have here is a dear older lady who could be found at the temple fasting and praying, longing for God to do good to Israel Longing for God to send the Messiah. Longing for God to keep his promises. There are Roman soldiers in the streets. There are corrupt leaders managing the temple. There is immorality and infighting marking the people of Jerusalem. This was not a holy city at this time, by the way. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in Jerusalem at every level of the city in the first century. Here's Anna, and she knows that God made promises. And she is asking that God would send the one who will make all things right. And she's fasting and praying that the Messiah will come. Um, I wonder, have you ever fasted and prayed for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you see the immorality of our day, when you see the injustice and abuse The moral confusion, the rejection of all that is true, good, and beautiful. Does it drive you to your knees? Are you compelled to pray and to wrestle with God in prayer and say, Oh, Father, send your Son. Please don't let this continue any longer. Come, Lord Jesus, make things right. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find what I think is the clearest passage in the New Testament about fasting. In Luke chapter 5, people will ask Jesus, why do the followers of John the Baptist fast? And why do the followers of the Pharisees fast? 
But Jesus, your disciples don't fast. And Jesus will say this. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In other words, there's a time for feasting, and there's a time for fasting. When the bridegroom is with you, when you're with the one you love, you feast. But when the one you love is far from you, and you desire to see him again, you fast. Jesus said, right now the bridegroom is here, speaking of himself. But he said, there will be a day when the bridegroom has been taken away. And then he said, my followers will fast. Fast for what? For the return of the bridegroom. Just as we have Anna fasting for the first coming of Christ, Jesus said, my people will be fasting for the second coming of Christ. And I would suggest to you that even though God has already appointed the day and the time of Christ's return, it will be the prayers and the fasting of God's people that fetch the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ will come again in response to the prayers of his people. And he will put a final end to all evil. And he will usher all who have turned to him as a refuge into paradise. Luke 18, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus says when he comes, he will be coming to set things right, to give justice to his elect. And what will they have been doing when he comes? They will have been, he says, crying to him day and night. Like Anna. Crying to him day and night. He says he will not delay long over them. Are we crying out to Christ to return? Is that our heart response When we see stuff in the world that grieves us. Could the reason that Jesus has not yet returned be the very fact that his people by and large are not yet crying out day and night for him to return? So I'm going to add a a parenthesis here and just say a few more words about fasting. Because it's a subject we don't get to address often. And so when it comes up in the text, I think it's worthwhile Uh, Back when John Piper was still pastoring over at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, one of the things he regularly invited his congregation to do was to join him on one Monday a month at lunch. And uh, and not literally join him physically, though you could meet at the church. There was a group that met at the church. But he just said to his church body, wherever you are, one Monday a month at lunch, skip lunch and fast and pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pointed out that God has often done his greatest works in history in response to the prayers of his people when those prayers were accompanied by fasting. It's not that fasting makes any difference in and of itself, but it's the expression of a heart crying out to God for some blessing. He said, God has confirmed in my own experience the value of fasting in getting long prayed for breakthroughs. 
I believe that if we seek the Lord with the hunger of fasting, there will be many such breakthroughs that we long for. Is there something you've been praying for for a long time? Is there an unbeliever that you would like to see God awaken to spiritual things? Is there a relationship that has been broken that you would like to see God reconcile? Is there a perplexity of direction on the horizon of your life? You don't know which way to turn. Piper says, I believe God is calling us to rediscover the place of fasting and appropriating his power. Of course, when we look to the Old Testament, we see that Old Testament saints fasted. Moses, Samson, Hannah, Samuel, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, could go on. The New Testament, we find the New Testament saints fasting, Anna, John the Baptist, and his followers. We do see Jesus fast in the Gospels. We find the Apostle Paul fasting. We find the early church fasting in the book of Acts as they seek God's direction and God's blessing. And we know from church history that even in the early church, new believers were taught to fast. Uh, an early church manual of instruction called the Didache, the teaching, said this, Let not your fast be with the hypocrites. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's interesting. So he wasn't saying the, the hypocrites, the, the Pharisees, the religious, you know, arrogant, they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, therefore let's have nothing to do with fasting. That's not what they said. The early church said, we don't want to be tied in with them. We want our fasting to be sincere, but let's still fast. So we'll fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. What's interesting is that 400 years later, in the 5th century, there's a man named Epiphanius, and we have what he wrote, and he said, Who does not know that the fast of the 4th and the 6th days of the week are observed by Christians throughout the world? So 400 years later... Christians were still continuing to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays as a common practice. Uh, great leaders in church history practiced fasting. Chrysostom, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, many more. Um, I'll give you just a tiny example of fasting in the life of the missionary, uh, David Brainerd. Remember, this was a young man serving as a missionary in New England to Native Americans there. Uh, this is just one example uh, from his journal. This was his journal entry on April 19th, 1742. He says, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for his grace. In the forenoon, I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world. And with all... I found a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thoughts of suffering hardships, distresses, and even death itself. I enjoyed great sweetness and communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt such an entire weanedness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything, all that I may always live to and upon my blessed God." So you see how in that entry in his journal, for him, fasting was a part of his prayer life. It was a way of taking a special day uh, in, in a year or a special day in a month and saying, I'm going to devote this day to my communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he believed that fasting helped him in that practice. 
Um, I'll move on for now, but if this is something you guys have questions about, we could talk about it at the end of the service, or if you have lots, we can do a, a whole sermon on fasting sometime in the future. Okay, close parenthesis, back to Anna. So her name is Anna. She's a prophetess, daughter of Phanuel. She's from the tribe of Asher. She's 84 years old. She's a longtime widow. She spends her days in the temple. She worships through fasting and prayer. That's her consistent, regular practice. What happened on this particular day? Ninth thing we're told here is that Anna beheld the Messiah. Luke tells us far less about Anna's interaction with Joseph and Mary and the baby than he tells us about Simeon's interaction. But we do know that at the very hour in which Simeon was holding the baby and blessing the child, Anna comes upon them. And she beholds for herself the long-awaited Messiah. Now, the 10th thing we see here is her response, which was thanksgiving to God. Uh, Simeon, we'll see this next Sunday, he responds by blessing the child, by having this, this vocal interaction with Joseph and with Mary. If anything like that happened with Anna, it's not the point Luke wants us to see. That's not what Luke tells us here. What matters is that she gave thanks to God. Because this is the Messiah that she had been praying and fasting for for so long. This was the answer for all of those years, perhaps decades, of being in the temple crying out day and night, praying, fasting. She had even been prophesying to others, surely, about, about the one who was to come. There were other people in her life who were waiters on the Messiah, probably folks who came regularly to hear her teach. Now the one they had all been waiting for was here. God's promise was being fulfilled. Her immediate reaction, thanksgiving to God. And not just for a few minutes. Notice that it says she began to give thanks to God. I think just as before she was marked by fasting and praying for the Messiah to come, I think for her remaining days, until the day she died, you would have found her still in the temple, marked by gratitude, praising God that the Messiah had indeed come. And then the last thing here that we're told, 11th, she spoke of Christ's coming to others. So before this day, you would have found Anna in the temple courts. She was proclaiming to Israel that they should be waiting for the Messiah. Now I think you would have found her as a public witness in the temple declaring, He's here. He's come. Be watching. I've seen him. He's here. Quick word of application. Has our response to the first coming of Christ been similar to Anna's? Do we thank God that Jesus has come? And do we share openly with others that Jesus has come? Because you see, we're in a better place than Anna was. Uh, Anna had only seen the Messiah as a baby. We know way more than Anna did. We, we know who Jesus was as he walked the hills of Galilee. We know about his miracles. We know about his teaching. We know about his cross. 
And more than all that, we know about his glorious resurrection and his ascension into heaven. We now know Jesus as the risen and ascended Lord who has done everything necessary to bring sinners to God. So knowing all of this that Anna could not have known at 84 years old there in the temple on this day, should we love Jesus less than Anna or more? Should we be less thankful than Anna? Or should we be more? And should we be less eager to share Jesus with others? Or should we be more? Now, let's take a step back and just think about what happened on this day. Remember? Joseph and Mary there to fulfill the obligations of the law. Jesus is 40 days old. And God in his divine providence put this man Simeon here. And God and his divine providence put this lady Anna here. Why? What is God doing? Well, we have to recognize that the coming of Jesus Christ into this world meant that there was a monumental change in God's dealings with this world. Think about how different this world will be after Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again, suddenly there's going to be the day of judgment, the ingathering of all of God's people, the ushering in of the the new heavens and the new earth. This world will never be the same after Jesus comes. Well, similarly, though maybe not as drastically, there was a true dramatic change from the days of the Old Testament before Christ to what is happening now when Christ has come. In the Old Testament days, people were saved by hearing and believing God's promise of salvation through a future coming Messiah. Now we are saved by hearing and believing God's promise of salvation through a Messiah who has already come and already accomplished redemption for God's people. Luke said that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna spoke to those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These phrases refer to Old Testament promises that a day would be ushered into being where Israel would no longer be oppressed, no longer be enslaved, but comforted. There would be a day when the price for Israel's sins against her God would be paid and Israel would be exalted again, exalted above all the nations. The prophets use the picture of people streaming into Jerusalem to show honor and glory to see her God. But wait a minute. Jesus came, and Israel wasn't comforted at all. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, who was under Roman bondage, and Jesus came. And Israel wasn't delivered from Roman bondage. She was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD, utterly wiped out. And as for the redemption of Jerusalem, Jerusalem did not suddenly become this great, glorious, wonderful, exalted city with people from all the nations coming in to give glory. The the city was left no stone upon another. I mean, Titus 
Honestly, the city was destroyed by the Jews themselves and infighting and civil war. And when the Romans finally get in, all they did was burn it. So what do you make of all that? Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus comes. Didn't turn out the way I think a lot of people thought it was going to turn out. Well, we have to remember that Luke, who writes this gospel, was Paul's traveling companion. Luke understands much when he gives us this account. It had turned out that the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord proved to be more than Israel expected. For example, the day of the Lord proved to be not just one coming of the Messiah, but two comings of the Messiah. And in between the two comings, there would be the building up of the church, the establishment of a kingdom, a true Israel, a true Jerusalem. The work of the Messiah would not be something accomplished in a brief amount of time. The work of the Messiah would be accomplished over centuries as he now, as the risen and ascended Lord, works through the Spirit in his church to build his kingdom. And when his kingdom is finished and his work is finished of building his church, then he returns again. Through Christ, Israel would be comforted. But not ancient national Israel. It would be the children of Abraham by faith who would be comforted. And through Christ, Jerusalem would be redeemed. But not a Middle Eastern city, Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is of above. The people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation who place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in his letters, is always pointing us back to Genesis and the first promises and to the Psalms and the prophets to see again and again that this is what God had always promised. That the city that Christ was coming to redeem and have for himself was not going to be just some little city in the Middle East. It's going to be a city whose, whose designer and builder was God. A heavenly city, a glorious city. That that the Israel that God would take to himself would be so much more than 12 ethnic descending tribes from Jacob. The book of Acts, written by the same Luke, walks as to how the early church came to grips with the saving reality that the work of the Messiah was broader and deeper and greater and more glorious than they had ever thought or ever imagined. And here are Simeon and here are Anna, and they both stand for us as witnesses raised up by God to say, yes, Jesus is the true Messiah. He may not be what you were expecting, but he is exactly all that God promised and more. And we're going to see next Sunday morning, Simeon understood this. It is revealed in Simeon's words that through Jesus, many in Israel were going to fall while light went to the Gentiles. Through Jesus, the hearts of many would be revealed. The the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in Israel would be unmasked. From these two saints, we learn that with the coming of Jesus, the days of the Old Testament are coming to an end. 
They are time markers for us, declaring that the last days have come upon us because the the Messiah has come and God's end-time plans are now underway. And we've been living in God's end-time plan for the last 2,000 years. End times isn't something that's still in the future. We're in the end times, and we have been since Jesus came. There's this age, and all that's left is the age to come, which is called eternity. Can you imagine what it was like for Simeon and for Anna to see the Messiah with their own eyes? He looked like any other child. It's not like the paintings. He wasn't glowing or anything. He just like a baby. He may well have been crying. That doesn't mess up the holiness of Jesus if he was crying as a baby. Okay, he may have been kicking a little bit. I mean, he's a baby. But, but here they come and they see the baby and they know who he is. How deeply moving that must have been for them. How their heart must have been warmed. Are you waiting for the day when you will look upon your Lord Jesus Christ with your own eyes? Are you desirous and eager for the day when no longer will you know Christ only by faith, but you will know Christ by sight? And you will behold the glory of God as you look upon the face of Jesus. And you will be like him because when you see him, you will be like him. When we see the Messiah, this is the day, it's in our future, Christians. It's a divine appointment. This day's coming. But when we see our Messiah, he will not be anymore a baby in his mother's arms. He will be crowned in glory. He will be accompanied by angels and saints gone before, shining like the sun. He will come in majesty and in power. He will come in righteousness and he will come in justice. When Jesus comes again, he will immediately invoke awe and wonder in your soul and joy unspeakable. Paul said in his letter to the Thessalonians that when Jesus comes, he will be marveled at by all who believe. So think about the most humbling, awesome, marvel-inducing sight you've ever seen. The most amazing thing you've ever seen. They just left your jaw on the floor. We're told that there is coming a day when you will see Jesus with your own eyes and he will be literally marvelous. He will cause you to marvel and he will cause you to worship. You won't be able to help yourself. You will see him and you will worship. And everything inside of you will be filled with awe and adoration and you will rejoice. Do we long for that day, Mount Hermon? Are we praying for that day? Have we ever considered fasting for that day? Let us stoke the fires of love for Jesus in our hearts. For the more we love him, the more we will long for him, and the more we will pray for him to come. May God make it so. Amen? Amen. All right. How much time we got? Nine minutes. Any questions about the things we talked about this morning with Simeon or this evening with Anna?